Hey, welcome back to Reaching Struggling Learners. This is podcast episode number four. And today we are going to be talking about what are tiers one and two when you're talking about RTI and MTSS. I'm going to briefly describe what RTI and MTSS are, and then we're going to get more in depth about tiers one and two, what they look like and what it could look like in your classroom. I hope you stick around. I'm Jessica Curtis of Everyday Teaching Adventures. I'm a boy mom and a veteran teacher. You're listening to the Reaching Struggling Learners podcast, where we talk all about helping students succeed academically, socially, and behaviorally. I hope you stick around. Hello, welcome back. I am excited and nervous about today uh, because I know that RTI and progress monitoring can be stressful for teachers, but uh, if you caught episode three uh, and episode two, I don't see RTI and progress monitoring as scary things, and I'm really hoping that through talking about it and through really discussing how RTI and progress monitoring can be helpful, that we can really reach a point as teachers that we can use that process not as a means of stressing ourselves out, but as a means of actually increasing student performance. So let's just dive right in. So first of all, what is RTI? In Episode three, I talked about that I have had different individuals explain it to me as a very rigid process that I must follow. And there's a little bit of intimidation factor there about the whole process. I sincerely hope that you don't feel that way. Uh, I hope that it's not being portrayed to you in that way because it, it shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. RTI is a process. And it's a process in which all students are screened to determine academic levels. They should be screened yearly. And it's part of, it's actually part of IDEA, the child fine process. Schools are required to screen every single student to see if there are any students that are in desperate need of special education services. Through that screening process, Any students who are struggling should be monitored. That monitoring varies depending on the level of struggle and the individual needs of the student. If the students get a little bit of help and they don't need any more help, they're not struggling anymore, or they're able to work on grade level without a lot of frustration, then yay, the system did its job. If they aren't making progress, that's when things get a little bit more complicated. That doesn't mean it has to get more rigid, but that's when we start looking at specific interventions based on the specific needs of the student. So in a nutshell, that's really what RTI is. It's just the process that we go through to determine next steps. So let's talk about tiers. I have had conversations, many conversations over the years with 
teachers and counselors and administrators who were not quite clear on the tiers. When I first started this process, uh, when I first learned about RTI, it was presented to me as everybody was a general education student. The students that were struggling or needed extra help, those were the tier one kids. Then if they needed, you know, to, to be pulled out into groups of two, that was tier two. So tier one would be just a small group of kids and tier two would be a, a smaller group of t- students. And then tier three was special, basically special education. Well, now, many years later, I understand that that's not the way it is or was ever meant to be. Tier one is everybody. And I've had many administrators over the years very confused about this process. Tier one is everyone. It is classroom instruction that every single student gets. It's the baseline. It's the curriculum. It's the standards. That's tier one. It is the curriculum or interventions that everyone in the school gets. So that's the level where the screening is at, by the way. So every single student gets screened. That's a tier one intervention because everyone in the school is getting it. If you want to talk about uh, behavior or positive behavior intervention support school, which many schools are, are moving to that, if everyone in the school is participating in that PBIS program, that's a tier one intervention. I've seen some schools that are confused on that. Again, if it is a program that every single student in the school or every single student on that grade level is using, it is a tier one intervention. At the upper grades, if every single student in ninth grade is on Achieve 3000, that is a tier one intervention. Even though it is specific to that student's reading level and all that, it's, it's something that everyone's getting. So I hope that that kind of clarifies a little bit what the, the difference between tier one and all the other tiers. So like I said, screening is at tier one because everybody gets it. And when that screening occurs, uh, and it could, it's, the screenings are different school to school. Uh, I've had students or I've had schools that use Ames Web. I've had schools that use RCBM. I have used, I have some schools that use map testing. Every school, they all do different things. So depending on the school, some schools, they use the previous year's uh, end of year state assessment. But either way, every single student gets screened and any students who are considered to be at risk. Those students that did not perform at grade level or students that were close to not performing at grade level. Those are the students that would be honed in on with this process. Any student who is considered to be at risk the teacher would do just normal teacher things with them. Uh, For example, if I were a second grade teacher and I was, you know, working on reading and I 
I noticed that some of my students were struggling with reading and comprehending nonfiction text. And so I'm working on nonfiction text with everybody in my class. It's a tier one intervention. And I have certain students are just struggling a little bit more than others. I would take the students who are struggling and have them work in a group together to read the articles or answer comprehension questions together to help them learn strategies together. When I'd pull all of my groups, I would make sure that I would pull those students specifically together to just practice reading nonfiction text specifically, because I know that that's an area that they were struggling in. That's all a tier one intervention because I'm doing, I'm a second grade teacher. I'm doing small groups. I'm working on reading and comprehension with all of my students. I'm not doing anything very different. I'm doing a little bit of differentiation because I'm being picky about my groups, but it still hasn't gotten up to tier two yet. Now, when we do our universal screener, our universal screener might say that those five students really struggle with nonfiction specifically vocabulary. That's when we start getting into tier two. Tier two is not going to be everybody. There's no way in the world that I, a second grade teacher with 30 kids in my classroom, am going to be able to do tier two interventions for 30 kids. That's just not going to happen and they don't need it. Tier two are targeted interventions. So if tier one is everybody in the classroom, everybody's getting this. This is what I think that the majority of these students really need. It's going to meet the needs of a majority of my students. Now I'm going to have my smaller group of students that maybe they're not making the gains that they need to at that tier one, even though I'm doing some differentiation, even though I'm working with certain strategies with those students. If they're not making the gains, I could pull them in and I need to provide increased intensity of interventions. So what does increasing intensity mean? Usually it means smaller group. That's usually the first thing that we go to for tier two. But it can't just be it's a smaller group of kids doing the exact same thing that you did at tier one. That doesn't really meet the criteria for increasing intensity of the intervention. It's usually smaller group and specific support to focus on the area of weakness. Now, keep in mind, this does not take the place of tier one. I have had some schools in the past, they misunderstood thinking that, okay, when a student went to tier two, they don't get the tier one classroom instruction anymore. No, tier two is targeted to their very specific weakness, their area of weakness. If you focused only on the area of weakness, they're going to miss out on all the other reading strategies that they would be getting from their general education, regular curriculum that everyone else is participating in. So tier two has to be in addition to tier one. And that I realize time is of the essence. Time is very difficult. I'll be honest, most teachers that I have worked with, they have used a center time to meet their tier two intervention time requirements. So the other difference between tier one and tier two is that 
While, yes, we document tier one curriculum and instruction through our lesson plans, that's usually how you document that, at tier two, we get a little bit more nitpicky. We start tracking student progress at the least weekly. So we would identify at tier two, you identify specific areas of weakness. And I urge you to not just look at the symptom, but to look at the actual cause of the symptom. I mean that when a student is struggling in vocabulary, are they struggling in vocabulary because they are having a hard time decoding the words? Or are they having a hard time pulling the words apart to to the prefixes, the suffixes, the smaller parts of the word, and being able to take meaning from that? Are they lacking comprehension strategies? Or are they lacking actual phonics strategies? So I will urge you to get down to the meat of that. So progress is tracked specific to the weakness area. And that progress is tracked for usually six to eight weeks. Determinations on next steps are based on the data that the the teacher is collecting. So I'll go back to my example. If I am a second grade teacher and I was working with those students and I recognize that vocabulary is an area of weakness for them, uh, especially when looking at nonfiction text, because that screener indicated that area, I could pull those students for 10 additional minutes two times a week. It doesn't have to be every single day. It doesn't have to be for 30 minutes. It can be for varying amounts of time. So I could pull them for 10 minutes. That's half of a center rotation in my classroom. I pull them two times a week for 10 minutes to work on vocabulary, not additional vocabulary words, but to work on vocabulary strategies. I'm going to teach them how to look up words in the dictionary. I'll be honest, it's going to be the computer dictionary, but what have you. I'm going to teach them how to break down the parts of the word. I'm going to be teaching them about prefixes and suffixes, those kinds of things. The way that we figure out what unknown words are. The reason that I would teach strategies and not specific vocabulary words is because, let's say we're working, we are working on the nonfiction text. If we this week are reading about mammals, teaching the students mammal vocabulary words is only going to help them for this unit on mammals. When we get to reptiles, it's not going to be as helpful. When we start learning about the solar system, reading nonfiction texts, the the words that I've taught them is not going to be helpful. But if I can teach them how to look up the words themselves, how to find meaning from the smaller parts of the word, all of those different strategies that I use even as an adult, to understand words that are unfamiliar to me, then that is a strategy and a skill that can benefit those students for the rest of their lives. And it actually meets the needs of that student. It helps to fill in the actual area of weakness. So if those students are working with me for 10 minutes, two times a week, the other three days a week, I would be giving them words that are unfamiliar to them and having them use the strategies that I have taught them to find the meaning of those words. So when they're working with me for that 20 minutes total a week, 
I'm teaching them strategies, the other 30 minutes of their intervention time would be practicing using the skills that I have taught them. At the end of six to eight weeks after collecting the data and determining at the end of those six to eight weeks, do I see an increase in the student's ability to make meaning from unknown words, then what I have done, the interventions that I have provided have done their job. And the students are able to move back down into tier one, and I don't have to worry about them as tier two students anymore. That's why the data collection is important. We don't want to create more work for ourselves as teachers than we absolutely have to. I know that sounds odd because usually teachers are just getting more and more and more piled on their plates. But I'm a firm believer that if we provide the baseline strategies and skills and allow the students to use those skills, practice those skills consistently, then we can back off and let them use those skills when they need to. So the reason that I strongly suggest that teachers look at the foundational skills that are weaknesses for the students is because if we can shore up those foundational skills, such as being able to make meaning from unfamiliar words, prefixes, suffixes, dictionary use, those kinds of things, reading to the end of sentences, context clues, using pictures and graph graphics in articles and in text, all of those things can help our students. And it benefits them not just in the specific subject that we're working on, subject meaning we're working on World War II, the vocabulary that the students need to memorize and remember and be able to make meaning of text from World War II is vastly different than when you're talking about the Vietnam War or if you're talking about the Revolutionary War or if you're talking about Australian history, whatever history you're talking about. So it's important that we teach them the foundational skills so that they can make meaning and start to learn independent of us. I've talked about it in in previous episode that time is a very precious commodity for us teachers. And if we can teach the students strategies and skills to help them figure out these things without us, they can make improvements even when we're not working with them. And in the end, I think that's, that's our main goal anyway, isn't it? We want the students to be independent. We want them to be able to learn at their own pace and be able to get excited about learning and learn in subjects and avenues that are of interest to them. For example, I am not at all musically inclined, but if I can teach my students about vocabulary strategies or comprehension strategies they can go and they can read and they can make meaning from text about musical instruments. And they can learn about a whole nother world that I'm not familiar with because I gave them the skills that they needed to be able to investigate that. That's my spiel about make sure that you're not just working on specific vocabulary words, but working on the foundational skills. 
sometimes students, when we teach the foundational skills and the strategies that they need, a lot of times the students don't need any more help beyond that. A lot of times our students are able to take what we teach them and fly and do fantastically. Maybe they don't get straight A's, but they're able to learn and they're able to grow and they're they're doing well. But what about the students that aren't doing great? What about the students that tier two doesn't seem to really be making as big of an impact as we think that it should? What about those students, the ones that are continuing to struggle? To answer that question, tune in next week to episode five, where we're going to start talking about tier three interventions. In the meantime, if you'd like to like some more information about tiers one and two, or if you want to do a little bit of you know, checking up on tier three. I have several links in the show notes for you to look at. There's several websites that I've used over the years to just do a little bit of reminders of what RTI is. The first one is rtinetwork.org and it's very informational, information heavy. Uh, It talks about exactly what the three tiers are. Um, it uses some technical term. It doesn't give some examples. Um, I wish that it it gave more examples, but it's still, it's a very good refresher on what the tiers are, technically speaking. And then another website that I have used for years and has been exceptionally beneficial to me is interventioncentral.org. That website has been absolutely phenomenal for getting progress monitoring probes and even working on data collection and those kinds of things. So check those two websites out. And if you are interested in reading a little bit more about progress monitoring and getting started, if you'd like to just jump ahead and get started in it, you can check out my website, everydayteachingadventures.com. I have several blog posts. One of them is five steps to uh, beginning progress monitoring. So check that out if you want to. I would love for you to go into iTunes and rate this podcast, especially if you like it. Please leave a comment and you never know, I might be pulling you in for a listener shout out because, you know, I think that would be pretty cool. Also, it'd be kind of fun to hear what you guys are thinking. Hopefully I'm being helpful and giving you some useful information, although it is just episode, you know, Thank you for listening to the Reaching Struggling Learners podcast, episode four. Again, please leave a comment or message me. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know any questions that you have. I'd love to communicate. Until next time, may your coffee be strong, your students calm, and the copier repaired. <laughs>